Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Welcome back to Littler's podcast on employment law for employers. We are Devjani Mishra and Emily Haig, two attorneys in the New York City office of Littler Mendelssohn, the world's largest labor and employment law practice. Today is our 2019 resolution podcast. As we're recording this, it's January 31st, and many of you may be reconsidering the resolutions that you made at the start of the year, but in the spirit of continuous improvement, we're going to identify 10 recent New York employment law developments and areas to watch in order to help employers improve their compliance with New York's workplace laws. If you have any questions or comments about what we discussed today, we welcome you to reach out to us. You can find our contact information and bios on the Littler website. Let's get started. Emily, do you want to give us the first of our 10 resolutions? Sure. Thanks, Devjani. I'll start us off. 2018 was a very active year for employment law, as you know, in New York and especially in New York City. We had significant developments in almost every area of employment law, from wage and hour to employment discrimination to accommodation. We're only going to be able to discuss a few in detail on this podcast, but we encourage our listeners to check out the links on the podcast page for more in-depth discussion in written form. And, of course, reach out to us if you have any questions about our top 10 list or if you just want to generally discuss employment law in New York. So item number one, drum roll, is New York State and New York City anti-harassment legislation. This one has kept both Devjani and I up at night because we have both been following it closely since the beginning and because 2018 laws are simply sweeping in New York. Uh, the hashtag MeToo movement is coming into New York and a lot of legislation got enacted in 2018. We'll come back to this one in more detail. But I'll leave it by saying that number one employment law resolution in New York is to comply with the new post hashtag MeToo laws in New York. Yeah, I could not agree more with that one. And as Emily said, we're going to get back to this. Uh, but we want to keep this moving. So next up is actually a double resolution. Items two and three for employers to pay attention to are the increase in the state minimum wage and also the increase in the minimum salary for exempt employees. The minimum wage varies based on where you are in New York State but it goes up to $15 per hour for New York City employers who have 11 or more employees. And the minimum salary for exempt administrative and executive employees has also increased. The numbers vary based on the nature of the exemption, the location, in the state, and in the city, and it depends on the size of the employer. We'll include a link to the specific numbers on the podcast page. So, New York employers, you will need to spend more for talent, but at least this topic is straightforward, which can't be said of some of what we'll be discussing. So, the resolution is to make sure that you're complying with the local minimum wage laws, especially if you're an employer who takes a tip credit, as well as with the minimum salary levels for your exempt employees, and make sure you're keeping track of this uh, with all the changes in all the jurisdictions where you have employees. Emily, do you want to get us to number four? Number four on our top 10 list is the expansion of protected categories under New York State and New York City human rights laws. Some employers think protected categories never change or they only follow the federally protected categories because they are multi-state. That's understandable, but it's really incorrect. 
2017 and 2018, New York City added protections for victims of sexual assault, stalking, and related crimes. And both the state and city increased protections for employees who need accommodation for lactation. Also, this trend is continuing. Just so far in 2019, New York State added protections for gender identity, and New York City added protections for employees' decisions related to sexual and reproductive health. So, resolution number four for New York employers is know your protected categories under state and local law. If you have the privilege of doing business in New York City, as I do, then that is especially true. So, Johnny, what do you think about these new protected categories that we saw in New York City and New York State? You have some interesting ideas on these developments. So, I, uh, I confess that I am a bit of a policy nerd, uh, which is not going to surprise anyone if you've been listening to our previous podcasts. And I think an employer can reasonably look at all these changes and say, okay, we need to update our EEO policy, our non-discrimination policy, and make sure that we add language that lists all of these new protected categories if we didn't already have it, and specify that people cannot discriminate based on these characteristics as well as all of the previously protected characteristics. But I think if you take a step back you know, what's in the written policy is really just part of the picture. Uh, I'm not really sure that there were terribly many employers who would have ever thought to discriminate based on some of these categories. And certainly, Emily, you mentioned, you know, the privilege of doing business in New York City. A lot of our clients are global employers, and given the differences between how our laws are structured and how the laws are structured in other places where they're doing business around the world, the list of protected classes which is quite long, can be very uh, staggering and even bewildering to keep track of. So I think the big takeaway and what employers really need to be thinking about is focusing on making sure that their employment decisions are based on business reasons, whether that is someone's qualifications or their performance or the company's performance, rather than making decisions based on an employee's protected personal characteristics that are irrelevant to the decision that's being made. On a practical level, employers need to make sure that where they acquire information about someone's protected status, whether it has to do with a domestic violence situation or reproductive choice, that those employers are careful to segregate and protect that information, respecting privacy of that information, and avoid situations where it could lead to discriminatory decisions. Mm-hmm. Very good. Devjani, let's move on to number five in our top ten list. Sure. Number five on the top ten relates to the increasing focus on salary history inquiries. Uh, at the end of 2018, Suffolk County became the fourth county in New York State to ban salary history inquiries following New York City, Westchester, and Albany counties. So basically, these are inquiries of a candidate as to how much they're currently making or have made in their previous jobs when you interview them. Together, these four counties cover more than half of New York State's population, and the penalties for noncompliance can be severe. In New York City, the City Commission on Human Rights can impose a civil penalty of up to $125,000 for an unintentional violation and up to $250,000 for a willful, wanton, or malicious act. 
And Governor Cuomo has recently pledged to pursue a statewide salary history ban and to expand the definition of equal pay for equal work. Uh, so while we're waiting to see how this plays out, resolution number five is train your HR personnel and your managers who interview candidates in New York and make sure that they're not raising salary history in the interviewing process when they're not allowed to. More broadly, given how many states and localities have adopted or are thinking of adopting similar measures, and given how hard it is, just practically speaking, to apply different standards in different places, think about whether you want to move away from these questions altogether, not just in New York, Massachusetts, and California. So, Jenny, one of the things I do is train hiring managers, and I, my list of what not to ask is just continuing to expand, and then my list of what to ask is, is pretty small. And I, I forget to sometimes think about what the motive is behind these new laws. I understand that probably the motive behind this is to increase gender equity in salary compensation. Do you think that this is going to reach that goal? Well, that is certainly the theory behind all of this. You know, the idea that while any specific employer may not intend to discriminate based on gender, when the employer is adopting salary structures that were created by someone's previous employer, they may be unintentionally perpetuating discrimination. Um, you know, even if you ask a candidate what they're currently making, you're probably not asking them all of the reasons that led to them making that number. And there's a decent argument that in the sort of back and forth dance that goes on between a candidate and an employer, uh, you know, how much are you paying? Well, how much do you make now? Um, an employer often has quite a bit of data and benchmarking behind what it is going to pay for that job. And so there's an argument that says that the candidate is at a disadvantage. Obviously, you know, many Littler clients bring us in to do pay equity assessments. Uh, this has been a growing area of practice. And so we and they will be able to track how these salary history bans may be working in states where they exist and those where they don't. But the bottom line, as you pointed out, Emily, is that hiring questions are always going to be a hot button issue. And there are a lot of questions that you just cannot ask in an interview anymore. And so New York employers really increasingly need to get used to this one. Um, so moving on, number six involves tracking a litigation decision from 2018. Uh, Zarda versus Altitude Express, which addresses sexual orientation discrimination under federal law. And in Zarda, the Second Circuit, which is the circuit that covers New York State and Connecticut and Vermont, uh, held that yes, sexual orientation is encompassed in Title VII's protection of sex under federal law. So our resolution number six is to keep an eye on this area and the Supreme Court docket and see whether they pick up this case or any cases that will address whether sexual orientation and or gender identity or transgender status uh, could be a protected workplace category uh, within the definition of sex under Title VII. If the Supreme Court weighs in, it could resolve a circuit split on this question. And the employer in Zarda did file a cert petition, but so far the Supreme Court has avoided this topic. So again, the resolution is keep an eye on it because it's interesting. 
Although I should say, if you have New York-based employees, Zarda may not have affected you much because state and city law have protected sexual orientation for a long time. And as we mentioned before, gender identity is now protected statewide uh, going into 2019. Um, Emily, uh, thoughts on this subject? Yeah, I, I agree that sometimes we ignore this because we're in New York and we have the city and state law, which um, sweeping protections for this category. But I'm really ready for the Supreme Court to weigh in on this and resolve the circuit split. I think they really owe us a decision on this topic. They came out with Masterpiece Cake Shop last year with the public accommodation laws, but they really didn't answer the question as to whether LGBTQT status is protected under federal law. Right now, there's some circuits bringing it into the federal protected category of sex, and we're going to see whether the Supreme Court upholds that or whether it creates a new protected category or if it says, no, it's not at all protected. Um, with Masterpiece Cake Shop, they really punted that decision, and it's interesting to see what they're going to do next. I think it's relevant to our clients who have a national footprint. Um, oftentimes, I counsel clients with their handbooks, and sometimes I say, okay, we don't want to include these protected categories in your handbook because you're providing this nationally and you're going to be talking to employees where this is not a protected category where they're sitting. Uh, and I think it's more difficult for employers that do cross states to deal with these inconsistent federal protected categories. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think this is really interesting. I mean, one of the notable trends over the course of my career has been that many private employers, especially multi-state employers, have moved way out in front of where federal law is in terms of protecting LGBTQT employees as well as in offering employment benefits to same-sex partners. You know, I know I was writing EEO policies that included sexual orientation well before New York State got around to passing the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act, and certainly uh, New York City employers have been, you know, writing gender and identity into policies for a long, long time. And whether, you know, this was for moral reasons or whether this was for talent retention and competitiveness reasons, I think this movement by employers really helped lay the groundwork for some of the state and local law protections that employees now have. So I would like to think that national employers will continue to lead the way on this and that eventually federal law will catch up. Call me an optimist. But Emily, uh, <laughs> so what's, what's next? What's number seven? We're moving on to number seven in our top ten list, and this is my favorite. This is the new funky New York City law regarding cooperative dialogue. For some reason, I'm obsessed with this new law, and it basically brings what we all know as interactive dialogue when somebody asks for an accommodation for a disability, for example, and New York City says you got to document it. Employers in New York City have been running around looking for this model document to show that they've engaged in cooperative dialogue. So our resolution number seven is create that document. Uh, it's not uh, rocket science. My sample is a one-page document. New York City, I know, published their sample cooperative dialogue documents. But get that document so that you're putting your cooperative dialogue and your ultimate decision in writing per New York City law. So I, yeah, I like this one too. And um, I think the, the documentation should not be hard. I mean, that's easy for us to say. We've spent our whole career saying document, document, document. Uh, probably what's really going on and what's really challenging is the underlying process that has to be documented. Uh, both, again, keeping track of all of the categories of employees who can request an accommodation and then figuring out what you do when different employee requests collide. 
for example, what do you do when one employee needs to use the wellness room to take medication and another one wants it for religious meditation? Or when one employee is severely allergic to another employee's emotional support animal? These are questions that are going to keep you busy. They're not easy. But one thing is for sure, which is whatever you do, you will need to document it on this form, and we have a form. So please don't hesitate to reach out as you're negotiating this process. Moving on, number eight is another one that is quick to describe, but it may take some work to implement, and that is increased protections under the New York State Paid Family Leave Act. If you work for a private employer in New York State and you have worked 26 consecutive weeks as a full-time employee or 175 days as a part-time employee, you may be eligible to take up to 10 weeks of paid family leave at 55% of your average weekly wage. Paid family leave is going to continue to phase in until 2021 when it will increase to 12 weeks and 67%. Obviously, the fact that this law applies regardless of the employer size, the eligibility requirements, and the fact that it's paid leave makes this very different than the federal FMLA not to mention the numerous paid and unpaid leave laws that are popping up all over the country. Our resolution number eight, especially for those of you that have employees both inside and outside New York, is to go back and carefully review your paid and unpaid leave policies and to seek advice on how to make sure you're up to date on this. Speaking of leaves, did you see Mayor de Blasio's proposal for a 10-day personal leave? I did see that, and it's been interesting. Uh, New York City really is continuing to push the edges of what we can expect employers and employees to be talking about. There's a lot of very prescriptive suggestions coming out of the city council and also coming out of the mayor's office and now coming out of Albany as well. I think it remains to be seen how much traction this is going to get, certainly for many employers, the idea of paid vacation is a no-brainer. Um, for other businesses, you know, the amount of paid vacation, when it can be taken, that's going to be difficult to manage. So it's definitely one that we're going to continue to watch. Uh, I think the important thing is, you know, even if you have paid vacation, that may in itself not comply with some of the rules around paid leave in terms of the reasons it can be taken, the amount of notice that's needed. Um, so employers shouldn't assume that even if they do provide paid time off, that that definitely complies with all of these sick leave and family leave requirements that are popping up around the country. Okay, number nine on our top ten list is lactation laws. In 2018, we saw new New York City protections for employees who are lactating and need to take a break to express milk. Under the new laws, employers must have a lactation room and must have a written lactation policy. So resolution number eight for New York employers is draft that policy and find a room that can be deployed when needed, when a request is made. It can be a dual purpose room. We get that question a lot. As long as you have a room that you can say, yeah, that's our lactation room when it's needed. I think this is a, another kind of funky, new, interesting law. If you've ever read the New York City website about lactation laws, they provide a ton of information about breastfeeding, which surprised me. Devjani, we have clients from the mom and pop shop to national companies. What are your thoughts on having, especially our tiny clients, comply with this type of requirement in New York City? 
Yeah, this is a tough one, especially because this law as written applies to employers who have as few as four employees. And you may be in a situation where your entire office is one room. There will be a need for probably employers to get really creative about this. New York State actually put out a pamphlet a while back that depicts some very creative solutions with pictures, uh, whether it is putting up a camping-style tent in an outdoor space or constructing a cubicle in an indoor space. But I think really given the extremely personal and individual nature of this accommodation, this is one where that cooperative dialogue that we were talking about uh, is going to be really important to ensuring that this goes well for the employee, the employer, and the coworkers, you know, especially in an office. I think this, this is one, again, where one would hope that uh, adults would be able to come to some sort of reasonable accommodation, but the city has decided to take this very prescriptive approach in terms of how this area has to be navigated. And so we're working with a number of our clients and just focusing on trying to reach the best solution that they can given, you know, really uh, very real and practical constraints on this. Mm -hmm. Number 10, I'll take it home for us, is what we're calling the bathroom question. This is not new law, but every single training that I do, I get this question about what are the requirements in New York for bathrooms, especially regarding gender identity and expression. So uh, to answer that question, in New York City, all single occupancy restrooms must be made available for use by persons of any sex. So the signage on the bathroom should reflect that and be gender neutral. Uh, a lot of folks aren't aware of this. If you walk around in businesses, this is often not complied with. But a single occupancy bathroom per New York City law should not have the symbol of man or woman. Also, uh, ding, 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 an employer cannot require the use of a single occupancy restroom for an employee or a customer um, because that, that customer or employee is transgender or perceived to be transgender or non-gender conforming. So I receive a lot of questions about this. We've made it to our top 10 list. Resolution number 10 for New York City employers, especially if you are a retail employer, is train your folks on proper bathroom protocol if this issue ever comes up. And I'm also going to watch this space, especially with the passage of GENDA, the Gender Identity and Expression Law that passed in New York City on January 25th. And one, one additional note on this one, we're not quite getting weekly questions on this yet, but as of January 1st, public restrooms in New York State also need to include diaper changing stations that are available regardless of gender. Or if a restroom doesn't have a changing station, there needs to be signage indicating the location of the nearest changing station that can be used by the gender that the restroom is assigned to. So uh, we are guaranteed plenty of bathroom questions for 2019 and beyond. So to close our podcast, I want to come back to what we started with, which was the Me Too laws. As you know from our previous podcast, employers who have employees in New York State and city should have already reviewed their arbitration agreements and their separation agreements and have revised their written sexual harassment policies, and they should be making sure to train all of their employees on the prevention of sexual harassment by October 9th, 2019. We have been working with quite a number of employers on this. Littler, offers a number of options for meeting those requirements, and we're happy to discuss them with you in more detail. 
but Emily, I understand there's more on the way. There is, as we head into 2019, some additional hashtag MeToo laws are in the pipeline. And Devjani, you and I are the hashtag MeToo attorneys in New York. So we're watching this closely. Uh, if anybody watched Governor Cuomo's speech or read the budget bill, he is proposing number one, removing the severe pervasive standard for hostile work environment claims, which is really interesting. So under state law, he's trying to make it generally easier for employees to reach the standard of hostile work environment under their legal claim. Number two, he's recommending that we have additional carve-outs for non-disclosure agreements to make it clear that an employee who settles a sexual harassment claim in New York can still file a complaint in, state or in a state or local agency or participate in a government investigation. Uh, and then number three, he proposed uh, new state anti-harassment posters which is interesting because New York City last year came out with a poster requirement. So it looks like Governor Cuomo also wants to have a state poster. New York City really put itself on the map in 2018, but 2019 is already proving to be exciting. So to stay on top of all of these developments, whether it is posters, policies, forms, dialogues, litigation, or anything else, Please look out for our future podcasts and client alerts, and don't hesitate to reach out to us for more information. Thanks for joining us. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.